Great. Well, it's wonderful to be here. And um, I know every speaker says that, but I, I just, I just want to honour uh, this church. I think it's an absolutely amazing bunch of people. Such amazing, godly leadership. And you know how sometimes you can become a bit complacent with your family? Um, I think we can become a bit complacent with our church family and we can forget the amazing thing it is. This church family is amazing. People's lives are being transformed. The work that Imagine If are doing is absolutely amazing. The godly leadership that we have in John and the SLT and uh, the sort of past amazing leadership of, of Nick and Jenny and, and others. This place is amazing. And um, in, in this place, I, I, I've really encountered what it is to be loved and encouraged to be fully myself. And um, so I just want to encourage you to, to realize the blessing of Frontline Church. It's, it's maybe not the best church. It's maybe not perfect, that's for sure. But uh, I say that because I belong here. Um, but it is absolutely amazing. And um, so thank you, God, for this church. Thank you. Okay, I'm waffling. So my name's Chris. I'm, part, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited this morning. So we're continuing this teaching series, Mythbusters, as we seek to expose these, these half-truths that often have a seed of truth, a kernel of truth at the center of it, but they're ultimately skewed distortions of the truth. And this morning, we're going to be looking at myths that surround, these distortions that surround the gospel. It's one of my favorite topics. So briefly, what is the gospel? Well, simply put, the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that stands in defiance to the bad news and the fake news that surrounds us. And the good news is this, that Jesus has come into the world and he brought his kingdom with him. The good news is that because Jesus has come, this world can never be the same again. Life, humanity, your life, your neighbor's life, your enemy's life can never be the same again because Jesus has come. That's good news. You know, if we were to take a, a brief look through the New Testament, particularly the epistles, those letters, it's quite clear that as soon as this gospel was proclaimed, as soon as it was preached, these myths and distortions started coming up and surrounding it. Most of the New Testament is written in defense of this truth. To keep the gospel pure, to keep it free from additives and additions and distortions. And we see in Galatians uh, chapter 1, we're going to read it, it'll be on the screen. Paul, the great defender of the gospel, writes this. I am shocked at how, over how quickly you have strayed away from the anointed one who called you to himself by his loving mercy. I'm frankly astounded that you now embrace a distorted gospel. That is a fake gospel that is simply not true. There is only one gospel, the gospel of the Messiah. You see, Paul was constantly working to keep the followers of Jesus on track, to keep this message pure. A thing I find about the, the gospel, I don't know about you, but I find it, it's something that is so simple that a child could tell you. They could reel it off. And yet it's so mysterious and otherworldly that it's something that my mind finds hard to either conceive, let alone imagine. It's beyond my wildest dreams. 
Sometimes when I try and describe what God has done, I feel like a, a, a baby babbling, trying to get the words out, because I can't really describe it. I can't put my finger on it. It's so mysterious. It's so beautiful. It's hard to conceive. I've often heard people say that the gospel is... Uh, are we having issues with this? Is it with me? Oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll pop it there. Is that better? I can move now. Okay. I don't move very much anyway, but... Um, where was I? Um, yeah, I've often heard people say that the gospel is merely the doorway into the Christian life. And I just think that is utter nonsense. I think it's madness. I think to say that, it's just crazy. It's a misunderstanding of what the gospel truly is. You see, the gospel is not just the doorway into the Christian life, to the other good stuff on the other side. The gospel is the thing. The gospel is the epicenter of the Christian life. The gospel is this wonderful, supernatural, glory-filled truth that Jesus has come and life will never be the same again. It's glorious. There is nothing more glorious than the gospel of Jesus. No sign that will bring you to a greater sense of awe and wonder. I truly believe it. That when you understand the gospel and you see Jesus for who he is, you won't chase after anything else. And this morning, what I hope is that we're, we're just going to delve in deep. And, and as we do, I hope that we're just going to brush away some of these myths, some of these distortions that have maybe surrounded the, the gospel in your mind. Um, when I became a Christian at 15, I was from a, a non-church background. And I attended um, this small evangelical church. It was really small. It was really lovely. Um, but before the worship, most Sundays or any time we gathered, the, the worship leader or the meeting leader would say something like this. Let's just take a moment to get right with God. And in those moments, as a 15-year-old boy, this panic would grip me as I mentally listed all the ways that I hadn't loved God and I hadn't really spoken up about him or, you know, lived a good Christian life, whatever that means. And in those moments, I would, I would sort of say to God, I would vow to him, I'll be a better Christian next week. I'm going to be really good. I'm going to be really holy, God. I'll try harder. The other church that um, we attended as a family was, a, was an Anglican church. This was the church that I became a Christian in. And again, most of the service, I'll be honest, gripped me with this sense of inadequacy, this, this sense of guilt as I asserted with everyone else that I'm not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under God's table as we'd shared communion. That feeling of guilt would grip me. You see, myths and traditions had begun to steal the freedom that the gospel first gave me when I first believed. So how do we know this morning if myths have infiltrated our gospel thinking? Well, for me, you know, God's taken me on a real journey in the last 10 years, but certainly the last three years of breaking away some of these myths and some of these distortions and bringing me back to a simple gospel of seeing who Jesus is and what he's done. I knew that my thinking was skewed because I would often wake up with this heavy sense of guilt just lingering over me. I hadn't done anything wrong to my knowledge, but this sense of guilt heavy on me. I would also feel like God's far away. Worship and prayer and Bible reading and serving, they became 
these ways that I try to gain or purchase intimacy with God. I often felt like I needed to do more, be more, be better. Like maybe I just wasn't good enough for God. I don't know if you relate to any of those feelings this morning. Maybe myths have infiltrated your gospel. We're going to look at three myths this morning. And we're going to start with myth one. Bear with me on this. Myth one, the gospel is the story of Jesus dying for my sins. You see, the gospel is not just the story of Jesus dying for my sins and then I get to go to heaven. It's so much greater and glorious than that. This good news, as I've said over and over, and I will say over and over, it's beyond our wildest dreams. You might hear that sentence, the gospel is the story of Jesus dying for my sins, and you might wonder why it's a myth. Well, in the Western church, I think that often in our attempts to simplify the message of the gospel, we've been in danger of dumbing down and removing some of the more mysterious parts of this good news. In the evangelical church, we've overemphasized and made the gospel into a a simple transaction of Jesus paying for our sins. And I believe it this morning with all my heart that Jesus has died and I can know forgiveness and you can know forgiveness. But the gospel is more than that. There are parts of this gospel that hardly ever get mentioned. I don't know if any of you have ever heard a sermon on the incarnation. I know that I haven't. Um, it's sometimes a, a thing that's mentioned around Christmas time, but it's, it's something that doesn't really affect our day-to-day understanding of God and our relationship with him. And yet for centuries, this mysterious and wonderful word, this theology that surrounds that, has been the very framework of, the, of understanding the gospel. The word incarnation, it comes from a, a Latin word, and it essentially means to take on flesh. The, the word incarnation, it, it can't be found in the Bible, but it, it's a theological word that summarizes what the Apostle John uh, begins to explain in the opening chapter of his book. And we're going to read from John 1. 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping on to verse 14, the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John explains to us that Jesus took on flesh and he became fully man. He wasn't created because he was always God. He is God. He always existed. He's not less than God the Father and the Holy Spirit, but equal to. We believe in God in three persons, don't we? He's always existed and always enjoyed relationship with each other as one God. But in his longing to restore this broken relationship with his creation, Jesus came and became a man. In the second chapter of Philippians, we're told that Jesus, even though he was God, emptied himself and humbled himself of his glory and became a man. And that's the very meaning of incarnation. Jesus left his glory and became the God-man. 
He took on our flesh and our frailty. He stepped into our very existence and experienced our humanity, every part of it. So why is this important? My um, family and I, we've lived in Liverpool just over two years, two and a bit years, and we found this city so welcoming and so wonderful, we absolutely love it. But I'm so aware that I could live in Liverpool for the rest of my days. I could support LFC or Everton. I could, I could eat Scouse a few times a week. I could call it the Asda. I could wander around ta- town with my hair in rollers. I could say ta instead of goodbye. I could call my mates La, but I will never be a Scouser. You know, even the very fact that I've had to highlight stereotypes this morning, it demonstrates that I don't know what it means to be a Scouser. I don't understand the shared experience and the history of this city and its people. I don't. But the incarnation means that Jesus knows you. He knows you completely. He didn't just come on a day trip to earth and visit us. He didn't just put on an earth suit to identify with us, but he became one of us. You see, when mankind sinned, we broke our relationship with God. And in our minds, God became dark, distant, unloving, unknowable. And humanity, we felt forsaken and rejected, and we projected that onto God. I don't know if you've ever uttered the phrase, God feels far away. That is a symptom of the fall. It's this idea that God is unknowable, that he's not really with us, that he's out there somewhere. You see, the fall has continued to distort our idea and our image of God. We assume that God is unloving, cold, distant, dark, mysterious, unkind and unknowable. Well, the, the incarnation is God's ultimate move towards us, towards relationship with us. The incarnation is God's way of pulling back the curtains fully. You see, Jesus came to reveal God in all his fullness. The incarnation, it can't be summarized just in Jesus' birth, but it's the whole of his human experience. He stepped into our life. And I believe the incarnation is the very framework of the gospel. It's the lens that we should view it because it describes God's heart and desire towards us. It describes his heart and his desire towards you this morning. And put simply, it's this. God wants to be with us. He wants to be with us. Just let let that sink in. Let it penetrate the noise and the myths that surround God in your heart this morning. He wants to be with you. Do you really believe it? Do you understand it? Can you comprehend it? The God of the universe wants to be with you. He wants to have relationship with you. This morning, you're not overlooked. You're not unimportant. You're not just a person in a crowd. God sees you. He knows you. He doesn't just put up with you this morning. He utterly loves you, and he wants to be with you and share himself with you. That's good news. You see, the incarnation, it shines a light into the void that sin created. We assume that God was far away and uninterested, but the incarnation shows us that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
He's not just nearby, but Jesus took on our very skin and bones. It shows us not only does God want to be with us in a, in a sterile, removed fashion because he's far too holy to come close, but he wanted to be with us so much he became one of us. He became embroiled in our humanity and in our mess. The incarnation shows us that God's love knows no boundaries, no limits. You see, God went to incredible, almost impossible lengths to demonstrate his love to you. The incarnation shows us that the gospel is not just a single event of Jesus dying for our sins and then we get to go to heaven. But the heart of the gospel is that God wants intimacy with you. And he has single-handedly made it all possible. It was his idea. He made all the moves. And he invites us to come and receive it by faith. It's glorious. To quote Robert Capon, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is the proclamation of the end of religion. Not of a new religion or even the best of all religions. If the cross is the sign of anything, it's the sign that God has gone out of the religion business and solved all of the world's problems without requiring a single human being to do a single religious thing. The incarnation is that Jesus stepped out of his glory and he became the God-man. And because of this, mankind and God are now intimately, intrinsically, inseparably linked. And we've been brought into union with each other. You see, if the incarnation is the framework of the gospel, the lens that we should view it, of this glorious good news, then, the, then union is the thumping heartbeat of the gospel. You see, in evangelicalism, forgiveness and redemption and getting into heaven of the heartbeat. But I believe that if you scan through the New Testament, and in particular Paul's writings, you soon realize that we weren't just saved from something, but we were saved for something. And that something is not a relationship with God that is tied to our efforts and our attempts at intimacy with him. We're not just growing closer in proximity to Jesus day by day. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we are brought into and gifted with effortless and unbroken union with God. That's the good news. And you know, when we truly understand it, we stop using prayer, giving, serving, Bible reading as a transactional way of trying to inch our way closer to God, which essentially is religion. And we instead enjoy the union. And everything becomes a joy. Reading our Bible becomes a joy. Giving, serving, loving, all of it becomes joy. We started with the myth. The gospel is the story of Jesus dying for my sins. And it is a myth because it's nowhere near the complete story. It's good news, sure, but it's, it's not the full gospel. The gospel is so much more greater you see, the greater truth is so much more mysterious and hard to conceive, but it's this. Jesus just didn't die for me. He didn't just die for you, but that Jesus came, took on our flesh, and he died as me, and he died as you. He took all of our anguish, our sin, our loneliness, our suffering, our disease, our separation anxiety, our religion and our religious striving, and he owned it. 
completely. And now we get to exchange this old identity and take hold of his. You see, the Bible says that we are in Christ, hidden in God, in union with him. And all of our striving and our religious efforts can cease because we're called to enter the rest of union. There's a picture on the screen here. Um, it's a religious icon called the Trinity, and it was created by Andre Rublev in the 5th century. I don't know if I pronounced his name right. Let's move on. But it's a picture of God, the triune and yet one God, eating, relaxing, and enjoying a meal at a table. And it was created uh, to capture the idea of this one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoying relationship, not, not distant, not static, but this dance of the Trinity that has always existed before time even began. But at the table, you may have noticed there's a space. And most art historians believe that once there was a mirror at that space. And it was there so that the, the observer could see their reflection and realize that they were invited to the table too. They were invited to come and, and eat, relax, chat, and enjoy intimacy with the Trinity. The gospel is not just the story of Jesus dying for our sins, but the story of all of us being invited to the table to have intimacy with God, to be weaved into the very fabric of the Trinity. And whether we realized it or not, it happened the moment we put our faith in Jesus. Myth two, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's, um, it's a, a phrase that I've used about myself in the past. It's often a phrase that goes hand in hand with people describing themselves of, well, I'm not a really good Christian. You know, have you ever heard anyone say that? Have you ever said that yourself? I'm not really a good Christian. The kernel of truth in the statement that I'm just a sinner saved by grace is that it affirms that salvation, union with God, is not something that can be earned. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For it is by grace, God's remarkable compassion, that you have been saved through faith. And this salvation is not of yourselves. It's not through your own effort, but it is the undeserved, gracious gift of God. You see, it was grace that drew you to Jesus. It was grace that enabled your eyes to see and your ears to hear and respond to this good news. It was grace that enabled you to say, Jesus, have mercy on me. I give you my life. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Welcome me. It was by grace that you received this lavish gift of God. What did we bring to the table? Did we bring our good works? Uh, no, because they're simply not good enough. Did we bring our, our vows to try harder and be more holy? No, because we would always break them. We get to bring our messed up, our broken, our sinful selves and be transformed. And it's all because of Jesus. And it's all from Jesus. Because he should get all the glory. In every aspect of this Christian life, we rely on Jesus, don't we? He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is our healing. He is our everything. You see, we're not called to a religion and a constant treadmill of inching our, our way closer to God by works and moral living. We're not climbing towards God any longer, but Jesus 
God came to us. And this is the story of grace. So I like that part of the, uh, of the statement that affirms grace. However, the rest is myth. Why, why is that? Well, the very act of receiving grace never leaves you as you were, but grace always transforms. It always transforms. You see, the gospel is not a self-help theory or a philosophy on how to have a better life. Grace is the death of the old self and the beginning of a new life. Romans 6 puts it like this. We have died to sin once and for all. As a dead man passes away from this life, so how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? Or have you forgotten that all of us who are immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death? Sharing in his death by our baptism means that we were co-buried and entombed with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. We have been co-resurrected with him so that we can be empowered to walk in the freshness of new life. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? This is, this is what we celebrate in baptism. It's what we're going to be celebrating soon. That, that It's not somehow the water has cleansed us up and we're, we're somehow a, a better version of our old selves, but it's that our old lives have died and we have been resurrected to new life. That old nature, that sinful nature, the nature that controls us and drags us away from God and towards evil is dead because of Jesus. It's quite a deep and theological point, I think, that Paul's making, but it's something that I understood as a young boy. You see, I, I went to the fun fair. I don't know if any of you have ever done that. And it was during that time where they used to give out goldfish in single-use plastic bags. And, um, and I got this goldfish. I won it. And I took it home and I was like, my fishy friend, this is amazing. We're going to have adventures and I'm going to tell you all my secrets. And I got that fishy friend home and I put it in a bowl of water and I thought, tomorrow the adventure's going to start. And I ran down the stairs excited to feed my fishy friend and there it was, floating, dead on top of the water. It wasn't swimming anymore because it was dead. I couldn't feed it anymore because it was dead. We couldn't make any future plans because it was dead. You see, the thing about dead things is that they are dead. And I believe that Paul is saying that it, in, the, in the exact same way that my fishy friend was flushed down the toilet moments later, our old sinful lives have died buried and have been flushed away because Jesus has come and he has become our life. In Romans 6, 11, it says, reckon yourselves dead. It, it basically means weigh up all the evidence and make your own assumption. Come to the, your own conclusion. We have died in Christ and we are now living a new life. Galatians 5, 24 puts it like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Colossians 2:11 to 12 it says, "In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, that sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in, you, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead." In other words, in a natural circumcision, flesh is removed from the body. 
But when we become Christians and we put our faith in Jesus, a spiritual circumcision takes place. The old nature, often referred to as the flesh or sarks in Greek, it's now dead, buried and gone. It's been removed. You see, Christianity is not a slow, painful death of our old self as we try to live holier lives daily. But this removal, this circumcision happens the instant we put our faith in Jesus and it's done by him. It's done by him. So what's the outcome of this spiritual circumcision in which Jesus removes our old nature? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you're joined to him by faith, if you're in union with him, he or she is a new creature. You're reborn, renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things have passed away. They're dead, buried, gone. Behold, new things have come. Because spiritual awakening brings a new life. You see, we now have a new identity. And so therefore, we can no longer refer to ourselves as sinners. John Crowder, in his book, Mystical Union, says, You are not a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint. Take the word sinner completely out of the equation now. Grace transformed you from one thing into another. God didn't just pull you out of sin. He pulled sin out of you. You are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. This is much more than the forgiveness of the old self. This entails the complete annihilation of the old self. God sank the whole ship. You see, the New Testament writers, they never refer to those who follow Jesus as sinners, always as saints. So now you can say about yourself, if you follow Jesus this morning, you can say, I was a sinner, but now I'm a saint, saved by grace because of Jesus. I understand maybe some of the things that have been in that section have have caused lots of questions to to arise, and unfortunately I don't have time, in fact I'm running out of time massively, but um, I've put lots of further reading and lots of uh, references in the app, so please take a look. Lastly, I want to tackle a myth within a myth, and the myth is this, myth three, preach the good news at all times, when necessary, use words. It's a quote that is often associated with St. Francis of Assisi, but in fact, St. Francis of Assisi never said it. He never wrote it down. I, I, I believe I understand what the quote is trying to say, and essentially it's this, the gospel is not just words. It's not enough to throw Bible bombs into someone's life and think that's okay. And I wholeheartedly believe that. However, not only did St. Francis of Assisi never say those words, but if you read any biography about this man, it's quite clear he was a bit bit of a Billy Graham of his day. One biographer notes that St. Francis sometimes preached in up to five villages a day, often outdoors. In the country, Francis often spoke from a bale of hay or a granary door. In town, he would climb up onto a box or up steps in a public building. He preached to any who gathered to hear the strange but fiery little preacher from Assisi. I relate to this guy. (laughs) He was sometimes so animated and passionate in his delivery that his feet moved as if he were dancing. I don't quite have that, but... I don't don't know how you first heard and responded to the gospel, but I'm going to make some assumptions. They are educated assumptions this morning. I'm going to assume that someone spoke to you about Jesus. I'm going to assume that someone or a group of people loved you and showed you kindness. 
I'm going to make the assumption that these people told you about how Jesus had transformed their lives and that they are no longer the same. And I'm going to make a further assumption that these people, at some point, they said, why don't you do the same? Most of you became a Christian and follower of Jesus because someone invited you. The gospel, if it's authentic, it has to be demonstrated because it's the greatest love story ever told. And love always looks like something. So to the poor, love. The gospel, it looks like food. It looks like shelter. It looks like housing. It looks like community. To the lonely, the gospel, love, the story of love, looks like community and welcome. It looks like family and acceptance. It says in uh, Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the gospel, if it's authentic, it requires a demonstration. But equally, it's impossible for it to be heard if it's not preached. In Romans 10, verses 14 to 15, it says, How then can they hear on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In other words, it's impossible to hear and to respond to this gospel unless someone speaks up and proclaims it in the marketplace. It's impossible. But we need to face up to it this morning, don't we? That we are not very good at being loud about this gospel. We are brilliant and very evangelical about the latest holiday that we've taken or the book that we've read or the movie that we've seen. Uh, I could tell you tons of people of the latest miles that they've just run in their, in their latest run because it's all over Facebook and Instagram. We're great at being loud about that stuff, but when it comes to the gospel, we become awkwardly shy. You know, even if this, thank you, brother, I love it. Even if this message, even if the world finds this message of this good news offensive, it is still the most loving thing that you could tell anyone. It's the most loving thing. And Frontline Church, we desperately need to rediscover the burning passion and power of this gospel. Because all around us, people are in hell and they are desperately looking for good news. And you are it. You know, I truly believe that the most natural reflex of hearing the gospel, if it's authentic, the most natural thing is to want to shout it from the rooftops, not to hold it in. I'm bursting with the gospel. It's the most natural thing to want to tell people. It's a natural law, isn't it? That's why we tell everyone about the latest run that we've done and the book that we've read and the movie that we've seen and the holiday that we've been on. It's the most natural thing to tell people good news. If we're not naturally gossiping the gospel with our friends and our families and strangers and enemies, then maybe myths have infiltrated and smothered the fire the, natural, the gospel naturally creates inside of us. Paul said that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes it. We need to ask the question, have we forgotten the power of this gospel this morning? It's not, it's not just another story. It's not just something that might work. 
This is life. This is salvation. This is good news. This is the most loving thing that we could ever say to someone and demonstrate to them that Jesus is alive, that he's come, that you can have forgiveness this morning, that nothing stands between you and God. You can come. You are invited. It's, it's powerful. It, dem- it absolutely wrecked my life and continues to every day. I love the gospel of Jesus. Going back to the story of Jesus and the incarnation, I believe that the very way, the same way that Jesus communicated the good news to us is the very same way that he sends us. And there is no one this morning that isn't sent. You are a sent one. You see, Jesus didn't stand off at a distance shouting judgment, but he came and he served. He took on our flesh and he loved us, didn't he? He became the incarnation of his message. And in the same way, Jesus has called us to be and to preach good news to crowds and to individuals. Jesus wasn't silent, but he announced the good news, didn't he? He wasn't quiet, but he spoke it in the marketplace. And in the same way, Jesus calls us to do that. Jesus invited people to follow him and to do life with him. And in the same way, we are called to build vibrant gospel communities that are on fire, that love people, that are authentic, that welcome the stranger. Jesus demonstrated both in the natural and in the supernatural this good news. And in the same way, he sends us to do the same. He says, in my name, give a cup of water. But in the very same way, he says, in my name, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. Let this kingdom loose. We're not called, all of it, we're not all called, sorry, to be evangelists and to preach the gospel in, in different nations. But we are called to be good news, to demonstrate good news, to preach good news to the people that we meet. Can I have the band up? This morning, I want to ask you, have have myths entered and smothered the gospel? That fire that, that God ignited in your heart once? Are you constantly feeling guilty, afraid, distant from God? This gospel is good news because it comes to free you this morning. It comes to break away chains. It comes to remove guilt. It comes to remove every stain. You are welcome. You are welcome. You are welcome. Do you still see yourself in the old identity of sinner? Well, the gospel says that you are no longer a sinner, but you are a saint. What does it look like to step into that identity? To say, I am a son of God, filled with his spirit. You know, in Colossians, it says that the fullness of the deity uh, fills Jesus. And then it later says that Jesus lives in us, the hope of glory. Can you believe that? Your life is absolutely loaded with God. You're not a sinner if you know him. You are a saint. You are called by name, loved. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Everything has changed. Maybe this morning you've allowed this fire to be put out. Maybe you're no longer talking about the gospel. Maybe, maybe you've lost the idea that it is powerful 
that it changes and brings change to, to our culture and our lives and our communities and our world and our nation. God is longing to ignite a fire in you this morning. And so I invite you to come. If any of those things uh, you feel like you would like prayer for, then come. I also want to say that, you know, when this gospel is preached, Jesus said and he promised that signs and wonders would follow. So if you need healing this morning, come and be healed. The kingdom is here. Jesus has come. There is healing here this morning. I specifically felt there were two people uh, that felt like they were afflicted by demonic spirits and God wants to bring freedom to you this morning. Amen.